Lord, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And in that sense, the earth is filled with your, your glory. Animals are reflecting your glory and humans are reflecting your created common grace. But Lord, there's a day coming when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we want our lives to count to the hastening of that day. And I pray that you would now, Lord of the harvest, come. And in this room, gather for your cause laborers that never dreamed they would be doing what they're going to be doing in 10 years. They walked in here not knowing that you were going to show up in this way in their lives and turn their world upside down and change all the plans they ever dreamed or confirm them profoundly. So Lord, there are several hundred in this room whose lives you mean to totally redirect, it seems to me. And I pray that you would now come and give me the kind of anointing that would be the voice of Jesus in their lives. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. And so Jesus would just take over now and from your word be self-authenticating in the direction you give for the cause of the nations. Through Christ I pray, amen. One of the most moving books that I have ever read about the cause of missions in the modern era is a little book that I think is out of print. Uh, it may be still around, I'm not sure. Hardly anybody knows about it, it seems to me. It doesn't have nearly the exposure that I think it warrants in view of the impact it had upon me in 1985. It's called The St. Andrews Seven, and it's written by John Roxborough and Stuart Pidgeon, and it tells the story of six university students at the University of St. Andrews under the influence of Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers is the seventh, so that's the St. Andrews Seven, the six students and Thomas Chalmers. Just a word about Thomas Chalmers to send you uh, thinking toward him and looking him up. Um, he, he preached one tremendously influential sermon that shaped the way I think about the affections and about theology and about missions. And the sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The very title is powerful. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So if you're trying to get rid of old lusts and old affections that you don't think should be there in your heart, trying to pull them out simply won't work. But to replace them with an alternative Affection has an expulsive power to drive old demons out and fill you with new kinds of affection. So Thomas Chalmers thought that way, and he had a tremendous influence. He was the professor of moral philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in the 1830s and 1840s, and these six students all went into missions under his influence, and together lived out 140 years of combined missionary influence. So if you do the math, 6 into 140, you get the idea of how much they invested in God's cause. And one of them was named Urquhart, and he died, I think, let me see if I wrote it down, 
He died when he was 18. Students went to university early in those days. Uh, John, Thomas Chalmers himself went when he was 12 and uh, finished university seven years later. Had to wait two years before he could take a church because he was a pastor for a while because he was too young to do what was prescribed by the church. And so there were a lot of young students and, and uh, this young fellow named Urquhart, that was his last name, died when he was 18. So he was one of the six. So he had zero, so you have to divide the 140 by, really, by five in order to realize what kind of investment they made. But the reason I mention Urquhart is because by the time he was 18, he had filled two volumes of memoirs. So how are you doing? You're 18, you've got two volumes of memoirs. Has your life counted enough that if you wrote down the significant things, it would fill two volumes? He did. And I just want to quote from it because he said something that is foundational to what I'm going to try to get across in this service. We know of no office in the church of God where the very highest mental attainments can be more beneficially employed than in the office, all despised as it is, of the Christian missionary. That's unusual. The best minds belong not in engineering, but on the mission field. That's what he's saying. Wonder why he believed that. Wonder if you believe that. The best intellectual labors should be given at the front lines of the most challenging engagements with the devil and his brilliant spokesman around the world. Now, the reason I mention Chalmers, brilliant, Urquhart, brilliant, six scholar types who went all over the world and invested. 40 years of their lives or so on the mission field is because this vision of a profound theological, biblical depth out of which missions grows is the way it was in the first and second generation of the modern missionary movement. These guys were the second generation of the modern missionary movement, not the first generation. They were the, the second Earlier, a generation earlier, was the first generation, and of course you know who the main first leader of the missionary movement in the modern era was, and that was William Carey, who went to India and stayed there 40 years, never came home, and he died there, and he went out in 1793. So these guys were 1830s, 1840s going to university, they were the second generation. And in these two first generations, right on into the 1850s and so, there was a common denominator to what was making it all happen. And the common denominator was that these guys were doctrinally driven, they were theologically driven, they were rooted in profound insights into the nature of God and the scope of biblical theology. They weren't piddly theologians doing the next best thing. They were deep, profound thinkers about the nature of God and driven in missions out of that kind of soil that was very deep. Not many people think that way today. Most people, many people today think you get into theology, 
You get into doctrine. You start talking about the nature of God and the nature of salvation and the scope and depth of the Bible. You're going to go to the university and spend the rest of your life teaching people how to do that, to teach how other people to do that, teach other people how to do that, and nobody's touching the world. That wasn't the way it was then and doesn't need to be that way now. Let me illustrate from the life of William Carey what I'm talking about. William Carey had zero formal education. And he knew 29 languages before he was done. He was absolutely brilliant. He founded a college. You don't need school to be brilliant. And if you depend on classes to be educated, you'll stop being educated at age 22 or 25. That's tragic. Because what you learn here will be gone in 10 years, especially here probably. Because the more technical you are, the more dated you are. There are profound, deep, glorious, never-changing realities that very few people know. And so I would like you to think this way. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about from, we're going to get to the Bible shortly, by the way. Uh, that's the only thing that counts. What I say doesn't matter. What God says really matters. And so measure this tonight by whether I echo what's in the Bible. But illustrating where I'm going from William Carey. William Carey went out after he'd been on the field in India for, I think, about four years. Not sure I jotted it down. Doesn't matter. A few years there. Oh, yes. 1797 this happened. So four years, four years on the field. He preached a sermon in front of many intellectual Indians uh, from Acts chapter 14, verse 16, and Acts chapter 17, verse 30, to this effect. You remember those texts? God formerly, in, in ages gone by, allowed all men everywhere to go their own way. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And the point was, he let India go for centuries. Now the gospel has arrived, and the word of the living Christ is, repent, all of India, all of Hinduism. Repent and believe the risen Christ. That was his message. A Brahmin came up to him and said this. A very, I have had this said to my face on the mission field more than once. He said, I indeed think that God ought to repent for not sending the gospel sooner to us. You will hear that. You walk into any unreached place and say, you must believe in Jesus. The first question will be, what about my father? Grandfather, great-grandfather. Now here is Carey's unprecedented response. Quote, to this I added, suppose a kingdom, and he's saying this to the Brahmin, we just asked that question. Suppose a kingdom had been long overrun by the enemies of its true king. You know, the true king is Jesus, and the enemies are unbelievers, and India has been overrun by the enemies of the true king for centuries. And he, though possessed of a sufficient power to conquer them, should suffer them to prevail and establish themselves 
as much as they could desire, would not the valor and wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous in exterminating them than it would have been if he had opposed them at first and prevented their entering the country. Thus, by the diffusion of gospel light, the wisdom, power, and grace of God will be more conspicuous in overcoming such deep-rooted idolatries and in destroying all that darkness and vice which have so universally prevailed in this country than they would have been if all had not been suffered to walk in their own ways for so many ages past. Close quote. <laughs> Nobody answers the question that way. Except William Carey types. And they were all over the world in those days. So different from so many today. There was a depth and robustness and boldness to their grasp of the glory and majesty of God as to make us wonder. My point is that the modern missionary movement, dating from William Carey and extending on, grew up in soil of that kind of profound, deep, robust, theological grasp of the majesty and the power and the sovereignty of God and his ways with mankind. There was no mealy-mouthed man-centeredness driving the early missionary movement. It was a very unusual age, and I praise God that he brought it about. Now, interesting that we should be called to attention of Jonathan Edwards because he was the theological force behind the whole thing. In, in England, in Britain, where all this is happening, they were all reading Edwards. He'd been dead for 40 years. Um, and when, when Carey went out, and here's a quote from Carey's journal on the boat, June 24, 1793, on his way to India, never to return. I mean, so many of you think, I'll try missions, I'll give it two years. <laughs> well, no emails, no jets, no cars, no nothing. Just go and take your coffin with you. That's the way they did it. May God raise up unbelievably new generation who don't experiment. They just die. So here's what he said. Saw a number of flying fish have begun to write Bengali. Now, this guy was a shoemaker. No education. Have begun to write Bengali and read Edward's sermons and William Cooper's poems. Mind tranquil and serene. So if you wonder what the roots are from a human standpoint, the roots of Carey and the roots of Chalmers, and the roots of Urquhart was Jonathan Edwards. This little band, Andrew Fuller, Samuel Pierce, John Sutcliffe, John Ryland, 
William Carey, little band in England were all this way. They were all gripped by a great sovereign God. The majestic view of God that moved them, moved them to lay claim to the nations. God owns the world. This is his planet. We sing that song. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. This gripped them. Their Christ was so big, so strong, so authoritative, they knew they had every right to go to every country on this earth and say, you belong to God, bow to King Jesus. That's the way they thought, because Jesus had said just before he left, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go make disciples of all the nations. I'll be with you to the end of the age. They were gripped by the absolute authority of Jesus Christ today and his rule and his ownership, his possession, his power over the world. The bigness of Jesus was what drew them and drove them to the mission field. And it was exactly the same in the next generation and the next generation. It was only later, in the late 1800s, that another theology crept in and another worldview began to take over missions and it weakened things profoundly. There was David Livingston, there was Adoniram Judson, there was Alexander Duff, there was John Patton, and a whole chain of people, starting with Carey, actually with Edwards and Brainerd, and then with Carey, and then with Chalmers and the Six, and then all these others for another about 100 years, or so, about 50 or 75 years. I love their vision. I share their vision. I want you to share their vision, and I want you to be as radical in your devotion to missions, whether you are a sender or a goer. We talk around Bethlehem. There are only three kinds of people. There are goers, there are senders, and there are disobedient. There aren't any other kinds of human beings when it comes to mission. So either you're a radically devoted sender, thinking missions, or you're a radically devoted goer, leaning on the senders, and there aren't any other kind except disobedient. And so I'm not saying all of you should go. I don't believe all of you should go. I just think hundreds of you should go, and some of you don't even know that yet, but by the time we're done here, God will have made that plain, I'm praying. Now, you probably didn't bring Bibles to a thing like this, but if you did, you can open them to John 10, because I'm going to spend the rest of our time in the Bible lingering over a verse that I love with all my heart. It's a section that I love with all my heart in John 10. It's radically missions-oriented. Not everybody reads it and thinks that way about it, but it is. It is the missionary text in the Gospel of John. If you were to, if you were to say, is there a missionary verse in the Gospel of John? We know what the missionary verse is in Matthew, but where would you go? There's more than one, but I'm going here. It's John chapter 10, verse 16. We're going to spend all of our time trying to understand this verse and its implication for your lives and mine. John chapter 10, so if you don't have a Bible, just listen carefully, and uh, these things will be up online so you can check them out later. I have other sheep, this is Jesus now talking, I have other sheep, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That's amazing. 
It's not a flock that he's talking about. I have other sheep that are not this fold. The fold that he's talking about is Israel. He's come to his own. His own have not received him. As many as received him. So he knows, I've got a flock. I'm coming to my own. I'm coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm offering myself to them as Messiah. And now he's saying, and I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold. They are of the nations, the Gentile fold. This is the great missionary text. Now what I want to do is put this in a John context. <clears throat> a theological context, it's, it's full of provocative sentences, this context. So I've got six observations to this context. It will take them one at a time. I just want to point to the verses. They're simple. I think they, they speak for themselves. I don't need to put labels on them. I, I could, I might as we go along. <clears throat> the labels tend to be controversial. If you, don't leave, if you leave the label off, people will say, well, that's the Bible. Put the doctrinal label on it, they say, I don't believe that. So we'll, I'll just decide whether I take the risk of putting any labels on it or not. Contextual observation number one, verse 11. Jesus calls himself a shepherd. <coughs> Jesus calls himself a shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. So, he's the shepherd, there's a flock. The first instance of the flock is the people of Israel, this flock, this fold. But I have others that are not of this fold. Okay, so he's the shepherd, there's a flock, Israel, there are others that are my sheep out there. That's number one. Number two, verses three and four. The observation, some sheep, some sheep in the fold are Christ's and some are not. So let's read the middle of verse 3 through verse 4. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes before them. Now, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In other words, not all people in the flock, not all the sheep in the flock are his. Some are his, I know my own, and some are not. And those who are his know his voice, and they follow him, and that's how you know who they are. Observation number three, this time from verse 29. The reason some sheep belonged to Jesus so that he could call them his own is that God the Father had given them to him. Verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, the reason there are sheep that he can call his own is because he says, the Father has given them to me. They were his, and he gave them to me. 
God has a people. A sheep. A, a group of sheep. They are His. And He gives them to the Son that they might go to the Son and believe on the Son and be saved by the Son. Chapter 17, verse 6. Going to brought out, go out from the context here just to reaffirm from other parts in the Gospel now and then. This one's from chapter 17, verse 6. Jesus is praying. I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my word. See the picture? This is John's understanding of reality. My father has a people. You gave them to me. They have heard my voice. They have kept my word. Thank you for giving them to me. Or chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now get this. No theological labels on this. Just reading the Bible. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's who comes. They belong to the Father. He gives them to the Son. When He gives them, they come. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I'll never cast out. And we've heard that glorious keeping power of Jesus. So Jesus can speak with confidence about sheep among the flock that are his because he knows that they belong to the Father. The Father gave them to him. They came to him. Thine they were, and you gave them to me. Nobody knows. going to pluck them out of our hands. That's number three. Number four, Jesus knows those who are his, we saw, and he can call them by name because they're already his and they follow. Back to verse three and four. Let's read this. The sheep hear my voice. Sorry. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. If you read John's letter, it says, By this we know who are of God. Those who are born of God listen to us, and those who are not do not listen to us. That's an amazing thing for an apostle now speaking for Jesus to say. The sheep divide by who hears the voice. Verse 27, chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice I know them, and they follow me. Now here it gets really provocative. And unnecessarily, I wish, controversial. The thrust of these verses is that being Christ's sheep enables them to come, not the other way around. 
You do not come to Christ in order to be his sheep. You come to Christ because you are his sheep and hear his voice. If you recognize his voice and hear his call and he becomes beautiful and compelling to you, you know that you are a sheep. Now this is startling. I, I was startled when I first saw this. <laughs> you know, the Gospel of John is usually the book we put in a new believer's hand. Because, and that's right, I, I think that's a good thing to do. Because grammatically, it's written like a first grade reader. It's the easiest Greek in the Bible. Any first year Greek student can zip through the Gospel of John after about 12 weeks of hard study. And then you jump into Hebrews or Second Peter and you think you've got another language. This is simple. But the theology of this book is anything but simple. It's mind-blowing. So you get to verse 26 and you read this. I mean, I remember the first time I read this with my eyes open. I thought, no way. I just... That's not the way I was taught. So I'll read you verse 26. The Pharisees, here's the background. You got to, in order to hear this verse with any sympathy whatsoever, the Holy Spirit has to awaken you to believe that it's a good thing for arrogant, self-reliant, presumptively self-determining Pharisaic human beings to be put in their place. But if you don't like that, then... You won't like this verse. But if you do, you might resonate with it. Because this is the ultimate put down for a Pharisee who says, well, if you are true, I will at least have the last verse, the last word, in ruining your plan by not believing in you. This is the verse. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. It's over. There's no putting Jesus in his place by your unbelief. He puts you in your place and he will have the last word. Period! With every human being on the planet, he is God. And nobody frustrates his designs. This was what drove missions in those first two generations. I'll read it again in case you don't have a Bible. You do, he's responding to presumptuous Pharisaic people in his face. You do not believe because you don't belong to my sheep. My sheep. Hear my voice, and they follow me, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's number four. Number five. Not only does he call his sheep and they hear him, he dies for his sheep. Verse 11. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. As the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, to echo Paul, you may, I don't know if you know your Bibles this well, but if you know Romans 8, let me paraphrase what we've just seen in John 10 so that it sounds like what it's really saying from Romans 8. Those whom the Father has made His own, He gave to the Son. And those He gave to the Son, the Son called. And those whom the Son called, the Son justified by laying down His life for them. Sound familiar? Romans 8.30. Number six, just the last one before we turn to another angle. On the basis of this sacrifice, lay down my life for them. He gives them eternal life and it will never be taken away. Verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And now I'll finish Romans 8. Say it again. Those whom the Father has chosen for Himself, He has given to the Son. And those whom He gave to the Son, the Son called by name. And those whom He called by name, He laid down His life for them. And those for whom He died, He gave eternal life, and they can never perish. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. No dropouts in Paul or John or Jesus. This is a great salvation. This is what drove the early missionaries with absolute unbending confidence into the jaws of the lion all over the world with their goods packed in their coffins. Wimpy theology produces wimpy Christians. This isn't wimpy theology. And I don't want you to be a wimpy Christian. Now, Here's a danger, huge danger. Pops up in every generation. The danger is, if you believe this, care whatever name you put on it, you believe just what I just read from John. The devil, who can't beat your theology, will in some irrational way incline you to take a pride-destroying doctrine from the Bible and use it to create a click. A sore no more go to hell India click. It had a name. I'll give you this name. It was called hyper-Calvinism. And William Carey hated it. Andrew Fuller, 
one of his contemporaries wrote the decisive rebuttal of hyper-Calvinism. It was called the gospel worthy of all acceptance. Hyper-Calvinism is a technical term. It doesn't mean real Calvinists. It means people who've taken this doctrine and said, oh, so God has people he gives them to the Son, the Son calls them, they hear His voice, He goes before them, He dies for them, He rises, He gives them eternal life. Oh, well that's us. And logically, there's no reason to preach to anybody who doesn't give some evidence of being in that number. That's the meaning of hyper-Calvinism and it's damnably unbiblical because the Bible is crystal clear on who you should preach to. Everybody! And the gospel is held out freely. Whosoever will may come. Christ died such that whoever believes will be saved. That's the message you preach indiscriminately in Central Coast California or any people group in the world and hyper-Calvinists were killing the church. And William Carey saw it, and God saw it, and he raised up these generations, and they were raised up in what power? The power of John 10, 16. Just when the Jewish disciples were feeling like they know who they are, we're Jews, we're saved, and those catfish-eating Gentiles can go to hell as far as we're concerned because we're the chosen people and the Messiah has come and we're his sheep and have heard his voice. Just when they feel that way, Jesus gets in their face and says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and there will be one flock and it won't be Jewish. It will be every people group on the planet I will have my people. And just when American Puritans were settling in as the chosen status of the new Israel in the new England, God raises up a John Eliot. Ever heard of John Eliot? I have other sheep that are not of this Puritan fold. I must bring them also among the Algonquin Indians. John Eliot was 42 when God took hold of him as a lover of these things and said, I have other people. And they're all in the woods out there that you're scared of. And at 42, he went and he learned the Algonquin language. Some words in the Algonquin language, as he put it in writing, are 42 letters long. He was another one of these brilliant frontline intellects that gave himself, till he was 80-something, <coughs> planting the church among American Indians. Would that all Americans had had that mindset. We wouldn't have the legacy we do. My city is tragic. We have the biggest native population in America, I think, living in an urban center where I live. Phillips neighborhood is the biggest neighborhood of native peoples. And they're decimated. There's no way to make it right. You could count Indian pastors 
Indian school teachers, Indian schools, little mini Indian colleges after 40 years of his investment, and they were totally wiped out. Well, that's another subject. Just when Puritans in New England, and I love the Puritans, were beginning to feel us no more, God said, I have other sheep in the woods. And he raises up a John Elliot. And just when particular Baptists in England, particular Baptists in England were saying just us, were being frozen out by this hyper-Calvinism, he raised up a William Carey, I have other sheep, and they're in India. Go get them. Just when mission agencies and churches were growing content with our coastland successes in the 1850s, and everybody was celebrating, we're on all the coasts. We're on the Chinese coast. We're on the African coast. It dawns by the Holy Spirit on many. What about the inlands? And the inland missions, China inland mission, Africa inland mission. Ever heard of those? They're not called that anymore, but that's what they were. And he raises up a David Livingston. David Livingston's whole mission was there are more people in there. We've got to find a way straight across this, this continent for the sake of the gospel. And so with Hudson Taylor, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And just when all of Western Christendom in the 1930s and even in the 1970s were celebrating that we're in every country in the world. Just at that point, a Cameron Townsend, founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, comes on the scene in the 1930s and he says, excuse me, what's this celebration of we're in all the countries? I count maybe 6,000 languages in which the Bible is in maybe, I don't know what the number was, a few dozen? And he founds with the Bible translators. Because the mindset was countries. And then in 1974, at Lausanne 1, Switzerland, I was in Germany at the time. Key leaders, Billy Graham, John Stott, Francis Schaeffer. And they're celebrating the progress of the gospel into all the countries. And Ralph Winter bless his pickin' heart, stands up in one of those sessions and rings a bell that just blows everybody away. He simply said, yeah, we're in every country. As anthropologists count it today, there are roughly 20, these were the numbers in those days, there are roughly 24,000 peoples in the world. Distinct ethno-linguistic realities in the world. Maybe half of them have been touched by the gospel. And then he looked out on this huge crowd of mission representatives and said, 90 plus percent of your missionaries are doing missions among the reached half. And 10% are laboring to penetrate the unreached peoples. And from 1974 to this day, the whole language of missions has changed. Nobody, hardly today, talks about mission fields. That's all we talked about when I was growing up. 
fields, meaning geographic, geographic areas where the gospel is or isn't planted. And the Bible never thinks that way. Now, that's an overstatement. The Bible profoundly thinks in terms of peoples, not places. Peoples, not political entities like Germany or China. China has how many thousand peoples? India has how many thousand peoples? So to think, we've reached China, or we've reached India, and now they're reaching, it's just to miss the point of missions. All authority is given to me. Go make disciples of all, and then you get this word, panta, all, ta, ethne, ethne. It's not a political term. It's not a geographic term. It's a linguistic and ethnic term. And in this room, goodness gracious, I wonder how many pockets of ethnicity there are that God delights in as created for something like a prism that will reflect culturally and physically and personality and all kinds of ways, reflect a dimension of his glory that no other ethno-linguistic group can. And he means to reach every one of them. So John 6, 10, 16 has over and over again driven us beyond this fold. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Every time we start to grow comfortable, every time at Bethlehem I start to feel content that we've made a little bit of progress in some ethnic diversity or reaching a new pocket or having some measure of penetration into the Somali people, 50,000 of them plus in the Twin Cities, the Lord says, I have other people that are not of this fold. You must, I must reach them also. Now, here's the way I want to draw this toward a close. So far, what we've heard, I think, is basically mandate and vision and go and what God intends to have for himself from all the peoples of the world. And you need, I need, more than anything probably, I need confidence and encouragement that if I put my life into this, it won't be wasted. I just think that's what makes us tick. If, you, if you're about to get into something, some vocation, if you felt on the front end of it, it's going to be a, a loser. I, I'm going to fail. I'm going nowhere, accomplishing nothing. You're probably not going to pick it up. So it is with missions. So these people in the first and second and third generation of that modern era had massive confidence and all of it's right here in verse 16. So I'm just going to close by drawing your attention to four things that I hope will produce flame of confidence in your heart and God may use that to ignite okay all right, I see, I see what, what has to happen in the world I see that it has to happen through human beings but now, can you help me believe that if I invest in this, I won't be throwing away my life? So here's number one of these four. They're all here in verse 16 of chapter 10. Christ has a people besides those already converted. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In the context, that means I have Gentiles that are not in the Jewish fold. I have them, meaning they're out there. I'm going to use another technical phrase, take a risk, and then show you how it can be non, 
in your way. A lot of people hear the term predestination and they think, if, if there's such a thing as predestination, meaning God saves whom he plans to save, well, there's no point in missions. That's just standard response. For, the, for those generations, had exactly the opposite effect for some reason. Let me give you a modern illustration of its opposite effect. I, I, I'm 62 years old. I was thrilled as a junior in college to be at Urbana 67. Okay? Urbana 67. So a lot of you are Urbana lovers. And I hope. If you're not, be one. Um, so there I was. I don't know. In those days, maybe 9,000 students instead of 20. Um, my my fiancé was with me. We were producing the, the Daily Newswire. And uh, they did a Q&A with a panel. On the panel was Warren Webster, who was uh, head of a mission. And there was John Alexander, the president of InterVarsity. And two questions were asked. One is marginally relevant to what I have to say, and the other is really relevant. Let me give you the marginal one first, just because it's meaningful to me for a bunch of reasons and might be to you. Warren Webster, students in those days, they went to a microphone. I mean, they're in front of 9,000 people, and they could go to microphones. Can you believe that? Just like you're going to do in a few minutes. Um, they went to a microphone, and they said to Warren Webster, you, you have a daughter, and you're in Pakistan. What if she falls in love with a Pakistani man? Like, this is a problem. What if she falls in love with a Pakistani man and wants to marry him and live there forever? I'll never forget his response. I never wrote it down. I just never forgot it. With, with great seriousness, he said, 10,000 times better a Pakistani follower of Jesus than a rich unbelieving American banker. I said, oh, yes! Way to go, Warren! I just love that response. That's the kind of radical devotion to kingdom realities that so many of your parents don't have and maybe you don't have. The reason I mention your parents is because I'm real sensitive how parents respond to when young people in response to my preaching, wreck their parents' dreams. <laughs> I had a parent say to me one time, and I can name him, if my son doesn't come back, I'll kill you. <laughs> he was not joking. Unbelieving dad, his son, left the dream of the American, this is a brilliant young man, and he went, and gave his life overseas. He didn't die, just spending his life. That pa parents who are not in tune with kingdom realities might not appreciate what you are going to do after tonight. The other question was John Alexander. Now, this is the one that relates to predestination. S a student went to the microphone and asked the standard question, John Alexander, I think you believe 
in these doctrines. Why are you doing missions? And he told his story in, in about a two-minute form, and I'll put it in a 30-second form. He said, when I first went out among the Muslims, I said, if I believed in predestination, I'd never be a missionary. And now, after, I forget how many years, he said 20 or 30, I say, if I didn't believe in predestination, I'd never be a missionary. What did he mean by that? He meant he had discovered the absolute impenetrability of the human heart by human means. That's what he meant. I can't save anybody. Can you? You can't save anybody. So who does? God does. Does he decide to do it in the moment? No. I have sheep. God knows. Our only hope is the sovereignty of God. Our only hope for success. Predestination doesn't make missions pointless. Predestination makes missions possible. Sovereign grace is not an obstacle to missions. Sovereign grace is the hope of missions. That's what drove all these early generations. They were totally convinced God has a people. One biblical illustration. Do you remember the time that Paul was deeply discouraged at Corinth? He was frightened. He was frightened. I mean, Paul had a right to be frightened. He was beaten with rods three times, and he was whipped 39 lashes five times in his life. Have you ever tried to imagine that? Leather strips, sometimes with little studded shells and sometimes not, but with a good executioner, 39 lashes leaves your back jelly. Happens the first time, takes weeks to heal. And it's scarred because there's no medical knowledge about how to do it. And so you're tight. And that back, it happens a second time. Same back. Takes weeks to heal. More scarring. It had a third time. Takes longer to heal. More scarring. It happened a fourth time. Took longer to heal. More scarring. It happened a fifth time. Now, by this time, you know what a typical American would be saying? This is not a good deal. I didn't sign up for this. Two years, little difficulty, I'm back to engineering. He never left. He never questioned his master. He said, I'm going to Spain. No 911, no medical facilities, no escape hatch. I'm going to Spain. Got his head chopped off on the way. He couldn't go. I'm, I'm after that. That's what I want to be. That's what I want you to be, whether your parents like it or not. Now, he's frightened. He's got a right to be frightened. He's frightened in Corinth. And God shows up in the middle of the night and says something to him. I'll read it to you. This is Acts 18.9. The Lord said to Paul one, in, one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. 
speak. Do not be silent. I'm with you. No man shall attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Paul, go stand in the marketplace and open your mouth. I'll draw them to myself. That's number one, encouragement. God has a people in every people group. You will not go to a place where he doesn't have a people. Your job is to open your mouth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's number two. Three more. Number two. These other sheep that he has are scattered all over. Now, where am I getting that? I'm getting it from John 11, 51 and 52. It's a prophecy coming out of the mouth of Caiaphas. He didn't even know what he was saying. And so it's interpreted by John. And this is what John says in John eleven fifty two. 52. He said this, not of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for the nation only, now listen, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I lay down my life for them. I must bring them also. And here, in different words, I am dying so that I might gather the children of God who are scattered. They're all over the world. They're, in all, they're on every campus. They're in every people group. And the fact that you might get laughed to scorn by 99 people will make it worth one lamb. One lamb purchased by the blood of Jesus and chosen by God from all eternity, intending to save it no matter what and no matter whose life it costs to reach them. And you don't know who they are. And you're not discriminate in the way you choose. I don't care how many tattoos they have or how color their hair is or how many piercings they have. You're not discriminating. You are indiscriminate in the way you're sowing this seed. And God knows I won't let the devil pluck that seed out of their heart. I won't let the choking happen around their neck. I won't let the sun burn that seed. I will see to it that this sheep have good soil in their lives and it will bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold and that one convert will be worth your life. That's number two. Number three. The Lord has committed himself to bring them home. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now get these next words. I must bring them also. He's about to die. And he says, I'm going to do this. It's the same meaning in chapter 16 of Matthew where he said, Peter, you're the rock. I will build my church. He's going to die, but he's going to rise, and he's going to build his church, and he's going to gather his sheep. I must bring them also. Now, here's the catch. How does he do it? 
What does Jesus' voice sound like today? Because his sheep hear his voice. What does it sound like? It sounds like your voice. That's what it sounds like. He has no other voice. A person might be saved reading a scrap of the Bible, reading a tract, not many. People are saved by human messengers. I become all things to all men, if by any means I might save some. I only quote that text so that you won't get on my case for saying humans save them. That I might save some. He knows he doesn't save. What he means is that when in Acts 26, 18, Jesus says, I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from the devil to Christ and from darkness to light. He means you're indispensable to me. Go get it done. Open your mouth and when you speak my gospel, I speak and they know my voice and they follow me. I tell you the dignity of this calling is almost infinite. It's scary how important humans are. Have you ever pondered how absolutely absurd and wild it is what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 38? I can't get over it. I just can't shake the incredible thing he said. And I prayed it for you, and I'll pray it for you for the next several weeks probably until I forget to pray it for you. He said, pray the Lord of the harvest that means ask the Lord of the harvest. That's him. Pray the Lord of the harvest, the Father. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers into his harvest. Does that bother you? The Lord of the harvest knows the harvest. He owns the farm. He's done this for ages. He knows workers. He knows seeds. He knows seasons. He knows plowing. He knows weeding. He knows everything. He knows how many and which workers are needed. Why are you telling me to ask you to send them out? That ought to bother you. It don't make sense. The Lord of the harvest telling you to pray to him to send out the laborers he knows good and well are needed 10,000 times better than you know. And he's telling you to ask him. And here's the only solution to that craziness that I have. Pascal, great mathematician, deep Christian, hard thinker about difficult texts, says prayer is God's bestowal upon human beings of the dignity of causality. That's true. It is God's bestowal upon human beings of the dignity of causality. Now you know how, how, how strongly I believe in the sovereignty of God, if you've been listening. But the Bible says you have not because you ask not. Wait a minute. That sounds like you're running the universe. I mean, that sounds like God is leaning on you. You have not because you ask not. That's a mind-blowing text. We don't have missionaries because we don't ask for them. Pastors don't have 
missionaries because they don't plead day in and day out. Give me two, give me three, give me four, give me an army. You don't have because you don't ask. Don't be like that. Senders love to ask the master. So here's what I'm saying. The voice of Jesus today in the world comes through your mouth or it doesn't come. Now, if you say, I don't want to be a part of that, he'll say, I got others. And you get left behind. But if you want to be a part of that, if you want to open your mouth in all kinds of settings and be the voice of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, God will be heard through you. 1 Thessalonians chapter what is it, 2, 13 or so, where he said, you heard our word as it really was the word of God. That's the way people will talk about you. They'll say, one night we were sharing over pizza and he drew something on a napkin and he opened his mouth about the gospel and all I remember is, it was real! And I couldn't sleep that night. I read through the whole Bible as far as I could read for five hours and they don't know what happened. They just heard the king in your mouth. Now, I, I'm not making that up because it says in Jesus' prayer, 1720, Chapter 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these disciples only, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. I tell you, as a pastor and a preacher, I am empowered by that word. I believe that tonight God is speaking. Not because I'm infallible and you shouldn't in believe anything I say that you don't see in the Bible. I mean that with all my heart. I have one authority. This book. If it's here, believe it. If it's not, doubt it. But I think I'm telling you what's there. And if I am, I'm not wasting my life here. No way. This is not a waste. And yours won't be wasted either. Finally, number four. The fourth encouragement. They're going to come when they hear his voice. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will heed my voice. This is authority speaking here. They will heed my voice. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I, I want to I quote a verse. I want to quote one more verse. And I'm trying to think, should I tell them the whole story? I, I'm going to give you a context. It, it, it may be totally irrelevant. It just seems like I should do it. Okay. We got, we got really liberal big churches in downtown Minneapolis. A few years ago, Jews for Jesus came to town. I love Jews for Jesus. The head of Jews for Jesus preached for me. What is today? Is today Sunday? He preached this morning for me. Okay. So that's how much we love Jews for Jesus. I, I love that. They, they, you know, big t-shirts in your face in New York. They, you know, just, Hey! Just in your face. 
I, everybody's so pansy when it comes to witnessing. Just give me one group that's bold. Cold turkey, get it done, come to town. So they came to town. Our church was one of the big supporters. It was the BYG, big BYG, big Behold Your God campaign. And it was mega controversial because we got a big Jewish community that does not want to be told you have to believe in Jesus. And all the liberal mainline churches downtown don't believe that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And I believe you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And so it happened again a week ago. The big, I won't name the denomination, don't want to get anybody's trouble, but... I got an email, because I'm part of the big downtown clergy group, and it said, we intend to put this paragraph in all of our Good Friday material, all of our Holy Week material. And the paragraph said, in essence, we believe in the two-covenant theology. Jews have a covenant by which they're saved. Christians have a covenant by which they're saved. And no Christian should try to evangelize or win any Jew over to Christianity. They do not need to believe that Jesus is their Messiah in order to be saved. They have their own way to be right with God, and we have our way to be right with God, etc. Now, the Jewish believers in my church got wind of this, and one of them, with tears in her eyes, said, You're not letting that go, are you? I know you got in trouble last time. They all signed a big letter in the paper against John Piper because he's an arrogant, you know, presumptuous, wild-eyed, fundamentalist fanatic who thinks Jews have to be saved by believing in Jesus. You, you won't let this go, will you? You, you were on that email. You, and I said, well, you can't respond to everything. And said, yeah, this one you can. <laughs> so I, I talked to my wife. I said, you ready? for another one of these. <laughs> She's really good about this. and Sure, you've got to do what you've got to do. So I wrote a three-page biblical exposition. I tried to speak liberal language, like I didn't quote the Bible. You know, I said, witnesses to Jesus. I mean, I quoted the Bible, but I didn't quote it as the Word of God. I said, here's a witness. This is a historical witness to Jesus called John. Here's a historical witness to Jesus called Matthew. Here's a historical witness to Jesus <laughs> called Paul. And I give out five historic, and, and all I said was, I sent it to the pastor who wrote it. He hasn't responded, by the way. It, it, it didn't blow up. I, maybe he threw it away. Maybe his secretary didn't give it to him. I, I don't know. But I wrote it, and, uh, and I said, it's really tragic that you are ignoring and contradicting five early witnesses to the one you call your Savior. And elevating above it, a contemporary reconstruction of theology. Now, all of that to give you the background for this quote from the Bible. One of those pastors I called on the phone during the big campaign because he had written so angrily at me, and I thought, okay, you're supposed to try to make peace as a Christian. And I called him, I said, let's go eat. So we went to Baker Square and uh, sat down. You, you, do you know what Baker Square is? Pie shop? Okay. Um, doesn't matter. It has zero to do with this. Um, <laughs> we sat down and got to know each other with some small talk, and then we began to talk seriously. And he said, my church is the most liberal church in the most liberal denomination in Minnesota, UCC. And my people think that I should preach from American poets. But I preach from the Bible. And I said, yeah, but you don't believe it. 
you, you don't think Jews should be saved? And he said, well, yeah, I, I think that's not what the Bible means. And then I quoted this text. So. The text is Acts 13, 48, 46, 47, 48. Paul's preaching in the synagogue. He's thrust out of the synagogue by the, the Jews, most of them, not all of them. And he says, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I turn to the Gentiles. And I stopped, I, I read him that. I stopped and said, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting the gospel. It sounds like to me, if Jewish synagogues reject the gospel, they're not going to get eternal life. Does that sound that way to you? And he said, that's your interpretation. That's where it ended, pretty much. It goes on like this. And the Gentiles rejoiced, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Which means they're coming. You open your mouth, they will come. In due time, they will come. So I close with a story. Peter Cameron Scott, founder of Africa Inland Mission, 1867, goes to Africa. He pours out his life in the early days. He wants to see the gospel spread where it has never been represented. And he gets malaria. He didn't know they called it fever in those days. And he has to go home. His heart broken. He gets well. A few years later, I don't know how long elapsed. He goes back. This time he's thrilled because his brother John goes with him. Got Peter Cameron Scott and John, his brother. And they go together. Got a partner now. Thank you, Lord, so much for John's willingness to go with me. I don't want to be alone. And in a few months, John dies of the fever. And Peter Cameron Scott buries him with his own hands, stands beside the grave, rededicates himself to be there alone for the kingdom. But he gets fever again, and he has to go home. Sounds like the Apostle Paul, right? Five times. He goes home, and this time, everybody thinks he's finished. He recovers, and he's totally disillusioned about what he should do with his life. And God leads him to Westminster Abbey where David Livingston's grave is, was when he went. And on David Livingston's gravestone is one verse. It's there today. You see it today. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. And there will be one shepherd and one flock. And he went back. And this time, he didn't get sick. And he stayed. And he founded a mission that to this day, we have people in our church with that mission. My prayer for you is that God might deepen and broaden your grasp of biblical truth. My prayer for you is that he might open your eyes to how white and ready the harvest is 
among all the campuses and all the peoples of the world. My prayer for you is that the majesty and splendor and glory and power and sovereignty of God might totally grip your life and sweep you up out of the ordinary and keep you in a realm of significance that you never dreamed would be possible. And my prayer for you is that this would carry you over all objections and all disillusionments and all sicknesses and all losses so that you embrace the promise, I have other people that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. And when they have all heard his voice through your voice and they have all believed and come, then the end will come. And the Lord of glory will return. The kingdoms of this earth will belong to the kingdoms of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, quietly and without any fanfare now, I plead with you, Lord of the harvest, for laborers. I don't know how you might do it or when you might do it. But I pray that you would come. And when we pray and when we sing, seal this. Don't let it go. Tonight, don't let people go to sleep without saying, God, I, th I think, I think that's me. I don't know for sure. Would you confirm it? And I pray that however you do it, you would confirm. Confirm the goers by the hundreds and confirm the senders. And don't let any of them be ho-hum, disobedient. In Jesus' name.